commentator put it, he'd rather live on his knees than die on his feet. And therein lies the road to war, because those voices don't speak for the rest of us. You and I know and do not believe that life is so dear and peace so sweet as to be purchased at the price of chains and slavery. If nothing in life is worth dying for, when did this begin? Just in the face of this enemy? Or should Moses have told the children of Israel to live in slavery under the pharaohs? Should Christ have refused the cross? Should the patriots at Concord Bridge have thrown down their guns and refused to fire the shot heard round the world? The martyrs of history were not fools. And our honored dead who gave their lives to stop the advance of the Nazis didn't die in vain. Where then is the road to peace? Well, it's a simple answer after all. You and I have the courage to say to our enemies, there is a price we will not pay. There is a point beyond which they must not advance. podcast episode 38 i'm your host john hendricks for this episode i had the privilege of having on former special forces soldier turned nfl athlete nate boyer on the show some of you may be familiar with nate and for those who are not in our conversation we discussed some of what nate was doing before the military what inspired him to join the military and it's very interesting stuff uh, as he had kind of done some traveling uh, before he had fully decided that he wanted to join the Army and, and make a difference. And and we'll get into that in a second. Uh, before we get into that, I just want to say once again, Tulane from Ronin Tactics will be in New York City. Uh, we are hosting a Ring Blade seminar that's going to take place at Brooklyn Athletic Club on Sunday the 7th. It's going to be t- teaching a, a variety of different things. Uh, two is a 22-and-a-half-year veteran of the Army Special Forces. Uh, he retired as a sergeant major. The majority of the time of those 22-and-a-half years was spent uh, deployed uh, in combat. So, t- And two is a very good teacher, and he has a lot of experience with uh, hand-to-hand combat and, and knife fighting and things like that. So uh, for this course, you will be... You're going to learn, you know, how to choose a blade, uh, carry and employment of a blade, distance and closing the distance, center line, off center line attacks, offensive and defensive blade, and lethal and non-lethal blade. So it's going to be a very interesting uh, training course for those who are interested. Uh, you can sign up at ronintactics.com. I will have a link for it in the podcast notes on the website. Um, just check that out. It'll be at www.globalrecon.net slash podcast. And you can just click the link from there or just go to ronatactics.com. I believe it's under training events. And then from there, you can find it. Okay, so with that being said, now I will play the conversation for you guys that I had with Nate Boyer. Hey, what's up, guys? Um, I'm on with this episode with uh, some of you may be familiar with Nate. Uh, his name is Nate Boyer. Uh, he's a former Special Forces soldier turned NFL player. Uh, so Nate has a pretty interesting story. 
Uh, and like I said, I'm sure some of you guys are familiar with him. So, Nate, how's it going, brother? It's good, man. How you doing? I'm all right, man. Uh, appreciate, appreciate you having me on. No problem. Thank you for coming on, man. Um, of course. You know, I, I know you're busy with uh, stuff that you're working on and things like that. So, so Nate, let's talk a little bit about um, what you were doing before the Army and then what kind of led you into the Army. Yeah, man. Uh, I was doing a bunch of random stuff before the Army, to be honest. Uh, I, I grew up in California, up in the Bay Area. And, uh, and growing up, man, I, I didn't really know what I wanted to do. I feel like felt like I wanted to be a professional athlete or something. Dude. That was like kind of my aspiration. And I, I played basketball, baseball, and a few other sports. And uh, just, you know, I was good, but I wasn't great. And uh, But I, I don't know. I just had no idea. Yeah, the Army was something I thought about like my senior year, but it was just because it was exciting and the adventure of it. I didn't really understand what I would be doing and you know what service was all about or anything. So I didn't join then. And then uh, I moved down to San Diego and I worked on a fishing boat for a little bit. Uh, then I moved up to, to L.A. and did a few different things. Uh, I was working with autistic kids mostly for my job, for, like making money and stuff. But, uh, you know, I was interested in the film and working in film. It's something I wanted to do. Um, but, you know, things things started to change. I was in my early 20s and, you know, 9-11 happened and, and I just was getting stir crazy. And I wanted to do something more. So I actually went over to uh, the Darfur uh, region of Sudan on the border of Sudan and Chad there and, and in sub-Saharan Africa, I did some relief work over there for a couple of months. And it was over there that I kind of uh, sort of gained my patriotism. I became uh, very proud of uh, what we had here. You know what I mean? I gained some perspective on, on what it's like in most of the world, especially in the developing world. Right. And uh, and I came back and, and I just had a feeling, this feeling that I wanted to kind of go uh, fight for those people in those places that didn't have someone to protect them, you know? So that's sort of where that calling came from. Um, and I, I came back and signed up with that 18 x-ray contract to go try and be a green beret pretty much. <laughs> oh, that's awesome, man. And like that, that relief work, that's like, what, like, what does that consist of? Man, it was, uh, I was, <laughs> it's a long story to be honest, but I wasn't even supposed to be there. I, I tried to apply through a bunch of different organizations, like these NGOs, like Doctors Without Borders and the Child Fund and uh, Catholic Relief Services, all these different groups that were over there. And they all turned me down because I didn't have a degree. And I, to them, I didn't have any like special skills I'd be able to offer. And I was just like, man, I'll, I'll do anything. Like, I'll, <laughs> I'll freaking help build the camps and, you know, pass out. Of you know, food rations or assist in the in the, in the medical center, play with kids, like dig ditches, whatever you need. And they were just like, "Well, I'm sorry, it doesn't work like that." And I was like, "All right, well, f you, I'm going over there anyway." So <laughs> <laughs> I just bought a plane ticket and like showed up and kind of BS my way onto the onto the camps out there. And wow. it was cool once I got there, man, because there was no Americans over there. It was. It was a lot of people from from Europe that were uh, coming down and helping, and 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 African people, but no one from America. And the people in the camps were like enamored by the fact that an American would leave what we have here to go over there uh, and do something like that. They were just like so into it, so interested, and you know they always asking me questions. And the kids were just like, you know, they all figured I was best friends with like Fifty Cent or something like that, <laughs> and uh, <laughs> they just wanted to hear stories about what it's like back here. And, uh, 
So, I, you know, I just, uh, I really enjoyed that. I really, I, I probably got a lot more out of it than they got out of it. But um, what I mostly ended up doing, to be completely honest, was spending a lot of time with those kids. There's so many orphaned kids in those camps. And then there's, there's you know, women. Um, most of their husbands are off fighting or have already been killed. And uh, they needed, they need help. You know, they need, uh, and it was good to have some of these kids that have like a, some more male figures in their life, even if it was just for a couple months. Um, so, I mean, I was playing soccer and uh, helping, uh, helping organize activities. And, uh, you know, once in a while I would, I would be able to, to assist in the, in the medical centers or, um, you know, help, help ration out the food and pass the food out and stuff like that. But, uh, that's mostly what I, what I was doing over there. And, and what, those are like refugee camps. Is that what they are? Yeah, exactly. Like huge refugee camps, man. Uh, out there along they're on the they're in the country of Chad, which borders Sudan, uh, which is right where that Darfur region is, and they're they're on the Chadian side, and but it's mostly Sudanese refugees. So what? So there's like a a big civil war going on there. Is, is that exactly, exactly what it is? Okay. Yeah, man. For a long time, I mean, it's a genocide. There's a, and it's still it's still bad. It was this was kind of the height of it in uh, 2004, um, and it was like. This particularly at that time, it was this militia called the Janjaweed that was um, mostly of Arab descent, and they were coming down to the country and um, basically just raping, pillaging, murdering, um, you know, African natives uh, because they look different, believe different things, and, you know, just the same type of oppression we still see uh, all over those parts of the world, unfortunately. But uh, yeah, it was really uh, it made me not only, you know, feel for those people, but it made me angry. And, uh, because obviously, you know, 9-11 had happened and we have, we keep having, you know, currently we're having a lot of horrible events go on uh, throughout the, the free world, you know, like, uh, particularly in Paris or not in Paris, but, uh, in France and in, uh, other parts of Europe and, uh, and obviously here too, but compared to places like that, where it's like a daily occurrence and throughout the Middle East, yeah, it's just like, most you don't hear about it because it's so commonplace it's, it's not to make the news anymore uh to be around that and see that that kind of the impact that that has on those people and how um, almost helpless it seems it was just like i felt like called to action you know yeah you know it's um like so today you know a couple of hours ago there was a shooting in, in munich uh germany I'm not sure what the details are, if it was some kind of terrorism act or just, you know, I'm not really sure. But, you know, these type of attacks, like you said, they've been going on in, you know, outside of the Western world for years, you know. And it's just now that it's happening in, in what we call these civilized countries, now, you know, it's big news. But, you know, these type of things have been going on forever. And specifically in Darfur, I know that it's really bad, you know, and, and just like a lot of places in Africa are really bad as well. Right. Totally. I mean, there's the terrorist networks there are, are intense and you know, the, the amount of like the, like the, the problem with the child soldiers and all that, it's just, it's so crazy. Um, but sadly you don't see the, like you don't see those Facebook, you know, flag filters go up over people's faces when stuff like this happens in those countries, you know? Right. And, uh, it's sort of not not that we shouldn't pray for Paris or pray for Belgium or you know Orlando, all that stuff. Like obviously that those are horrible, horrible acts. But at the same time, um, I, I don't know. I mean, this kind of stuff happens 
all the time in these other places. And for me, just knowing that I grew up with so much and I was so fortunate to be just born in, in America and to be an American, I felt like it was sort of, I owed it to maybe my country and part of the rest of the world to, at least at that time in my life, to go continue to do something about it. Right. So you said you you, you uh, signed an 18 X-ray contract. Yeah. Uh, so were you one of the first waves to go through that program? Um, probably this, probably like, I think it started, I want to say it started in 02 or 03. And so there'd been a few courses already through, I think probably about two years before I went, I, I went in. Um, I didn't even know about it though. I didn't know about it. So I got back from, from, from Africa. I got back and I was like, I remember being there and I was listening to Fallujah go down on the radio, like a BBC radio. And I was like, man, I gotta, I gotta get over there. I gotta sign up. So I came back and I was like, I don't know what I'm going to do. Am I going to be a Marine? Am I going to like, what am I going to do? And, uh, I like saw this magazine that was talking about the new special forces program. Like, I think the first graduates had come through that 18 x-ray program at this time. Right. And so I was reading about that and they were like deploying these guys and they were just, you know, 18 months before that, they were just another guy on the street like me. And so I was like, man, like that, I mean, that would be ideal if I could make that happen. I, I wasn't in the best shape at the time. And I used to like, like, you know, I was like rolling my own cigarettes and drinking too much and all that shit. But I, uh, I, I decided to just, you know, knuckle down and, and kind of make that decision that if I was going to sign up, if I was going to join, I might as well go after the, one of the more elite, you know, units. And if I don't make it, it's not like falling back on the infantry is a bad thing, man. <laughs> those, right. are some, those are some badasses too. So, you know. So for the audience who, who won't know, the 18 X-ray program was a, a program. And I, I believe they had this during Vietnam as well at some point. But Yeah, yeah. It was called something different. But yeah, exactly. It's a, it was called like the – generically, they call it the SF baby program. Yeah, yeah. So it's like, yeah, special you, – you come in off the street. If you test high enough on like some both physical and mental tests and like a psyche valve and language aptitude and stuff like that, um, then you have the opportunity – to go through the special forces uh, assessment and selection uh, course and potentially, uh, you know, all, all the way through the, uh, the, uh, what do you call it? The, uh, uh, damn dude, the qualification course. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's been a while. It's been a while. Uh, the, the SF qualification course, or we call it the Q course. You have, you know, if you make it through all the phases, then you get your green beret and, and, and you, you may only have been in the army at that point for, you know, two years or less. Um, and you're already a, a, a newly pinned uh, E5 sergeant uh, with a green beret on your head and no combat experience like me. So, you know, you gotta, you got to be able to drink from the fire hose and learn fast in those situations. Right. So basically, like right after basics, you go straight into SAFS? S SFAS. SSFAS, sorry. Yeah. Um, yeah, you go basic training, you go airborne school, and then you go to a pre-selection uh, they called it SOPC at the time. It was like Special Operations Preparatory Course. And then you go to SFAS uh, after that. So I went to, I, I, I was, let's see, I'd probably been in for, man, only about five months when I went to SFAS. So I was, you know, I was young. I was young in the Army. Right. Okay, so, and then, you, you know, you pass selection, you get assigned to your group. And and then how long were you in the army in total? 
total uh, ten years. But the last the last four years I did was in uh, the Army National Guard. I, I, and I, on active duty, I was in first group and then tenth group. And then when I was in the guard, I was in nineteenth group. Uh, but I was I was in Austin, Texas, going to college, and the base uh, for that nineteenth group unit was down in uh, Camp Bullis in San Antonio. All right. Yeah, I know they had a, a base in San Antonio. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then earlier this year, nineteenth um, uh, group, they lost a guy over in Afghanistan. Um, you know, uh, his name was uh, Matthew McClintock. I'm not sure if you're familiar with. Yeah. This. No, I, I am familiar with him. I, ne- I never met him, but uh, absolutely know who he is. So yeah, it was. Uh, I think it was. It was pretty cool, uh, in my opinion, how. Uh, much attention they brought to they brought to him and, and everything, and he seemed like it seemed like just one of those guys that everybody loved, and really, uh, uh, yeah, it was a tough uh, a tough loss for the community. No, no question about that. Yeah, actually, a, a few episodes ago, I had a, uh, a former eighteen Delta on who served who either he went through the Q course with Matt or they were assigned to the same group like real early on in their careers, mm. and. Um, and and you know, like you said, I thought it was cool that you know it received so much attention and support. And I forget what the final number was, but because he when when Matt was killed, he had his wife had just given birth, you know. So right, um, I think it was the wife's friend set up a GoFundMe account, and you know, within a few days, they had raised like over a hundred grand uh, for the family, you know. So it. You know, so it showed like the power of social media and and how positive it can be. You know, I thought that was pretty cool. Yeah, that is very cool. I mean, you know, despite obviously the the, the horrible loss, man, it's just it's cool to see our community and uh, the brotherhood continue even when you know one of our one of our own uh, falls. Yeah. So Nate. So then you when you went into the uh, Army National Guard. You were playing football at the time, or you just started playing football? Yeah, yeah. I got out, came off active duty, and I went to Texas in Austin. And uh, I, I'd, uh, I always had like a dream of playing football, and I, and I never did it, and I kind of regretted it. And so I made the decision that I was gonna—I wasn't gonna reenlist, but I was gonna go to college because I was 29 at the time, and I figured if you know if I don't go now, I'll probably never go. So I went. I went down to Austin, um, found out when the tryouts were, was tra- you know, training up for it. I, I was in really good shape, really good condition, uh, like army shape, you know. I mean, I could run like a freaking deer. And uh, it, it was in a PT stud in, in those ways, but that does not necessarily translate to the football field. Right. <laughs> those guys are bigger and faster and stronger and in different ways. You know, it's all, it's very much speed and power sport where, right. you know, it's a much more of the endurance aspect. Uh, when you are, uh, you know, in the military. So I, I had to kind of retrain my body and put some weight on and all that, but I tried out, I made the team, you know, eventually, uh, found a position where I could win the starting job and, and was able to play for a few years there. But, but yeah, I enlisted in the, uh, actually had, a one of our practices I had, uh, I enlisted into the national guard, which was cool. I had a couple of my teammates hold the flag up and they were, you know, a couple young guys that were 21, 21 years old, maybe. And they thought it was like the coolest thing that ever been a part of. That's awesome. And, uh, and so I, you know, I, I was swore in there at practice and it was, uh, it was pretty neat. 
and then you you went on and you continued to play ball and then you you made it to the NFL you you were signed by the Seahawks I think for for a little while yeah yeah I uh so I was at I was at Texas from 2010 to 2014 and uh had had a couple short deployments in there um with 19th group um and then after my senior year um playing ball I, I decided to end my my military career and try to make a run at, at the NFL and I was fortunate enough to to get signed uh, on the last day of the draft uh, last year I was signed with the Seahawks and went up there and went through uh you know OTAs and training camp and all that you know unfortunately I, I didn't make the final roster but uh I can't complain <laughs> with how how far I got I got to play in a preseason game versus the Broncos um that's awesome in up in up in Century Link in, in Seattle and that fan base is unbelievable and uh it was just an amazing experience man it really was yeah i remember um you know there were a few news articles about it and um and you know the whole like social media military community people were talking about it and uh, a lot of people were supporting you man I thought that was pretty awesome yeah yeah it was awesome <laughs> i really felt the support you know i was uh it was so cool it was so cool it's funny how I feel like our, our community, especially on the social media waves, um, it, in some ways it's like more powerful than national news. Oh yeah. <laughs> just, just because like, you know, the national news, they tell these stories or whatever. And people are like, Oh, that's cool. And then like they turn off the TV, go to bed, whatever. It's like, whatever. But with us, like people will like, you know, they'll read about it. They'll be like, that's awesome. They'll share about it. And they'll say, Hey, check this guy out. You know, I was proud to be, in the military at the same time he was and we blah, 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 or whatever. Yeah. You know, we're always so proud of guys in our community and girls in our community that continue to kick ass after we take the uniform off, uh, the military uniform that is. And, uh, and, and I love, I love to see all that stuff, you know, with, with guys that are all, all the things that people are doing these days, um, whether they're starting businesses or, uh, you know, chasing whatever dreams they got. It's just so cool to see them continue to, to uh to be legendary <laughs> yeah it's awesome man and that's one of the um you know when i when i started this that was one of the ideas i had in mind was to you know create this platform where i can highlight veteran uh owned businesses or you know ventures or special projects and things like that and it's really awesome like and, and then you know especially after 15 years of war you know you have a lot of veterans coming home and getting out and and they're using those skills that they learned, uh, you know, in, in creative ways or, you know, guys who were medics are coming out and, and doing things in the medical field. And it's really awesome to see. But uh, last night I was recording uh, a podcast with a former Mac V saw Green Beret from Vietnam. And one and then I had a there was a, a GWAP Marine on and one of my friends who is a he wrote a book on Mac Visog and it was a very good book. So, you know, we're just having like this open discussion. And one of the things that came up was the, the difference in how the Vietnam veterans were received versus today, you know? Yeah. And, um, and then one thing that, that the, um, the Mac Visog guy, a, a distinguishing difference he made was that he said before the Tet offensive in 67, 68, it wasn't a big issue, but it wasn't until, you know, the news media declared that we had lost in Vietnam that they really, it really got ugly for them. 
And he had one rotation before that, and then he had one rotation after, and he said it was, like, completely different, uh, the reception that he had when he came home. Right, yeah. I mean, I can't even imagine uh, that kind of negativity for that. I mean, but it's, like, a lot of that to defend the civilians uh, is just naivety, man. They just didn't know, and they were stupid and uneducated in that way. Uh, and, And not understanding or realizing that a lot of those guys... Um, I mean, you're over there in those situations, man. You, you, you have to follow orders. You have a job to do. You got to do, um, in, in a sense, you got to do what you're told sometimes. Uh, and, and now, obviously, that doesn't mean, you know, killing innocent people and all that. And I know some of that stuff happens, sadly, but at the same time, most, the majority of those people, just like the, the police officers today, man, majority of them are freaking, were freaking great dudes that did the best they could over there and to get uh treated like that um when they return is just it's pretty disgusting man for someone that you probably never done anything in their life for anybody else right you know i mean it's typically the people that have that sort of animosity it's something else going on inside of them you know they're empty for some reason and they want to take it out on somebody else like like that person's ruining their life but anyway i'll go on a tangent about that (laughs) but uh yeah, I mean, I just, you know, for any Vietnam vet listening right now, I just want to say welcome home. No matter what you did over there, whether you signed up or you were drafted, it doesn't matter. Uh, you became someone who served our country, and I appreciate it. Um, but, yeah, I mean, we're, we're kind of seeing that at a much, much smaller scale now with, like, you know, the police officers, man. And uh, most of them are, are great dudes. You know, there's a, there's a couple guys that maybe made some mistakes. But, I mean, come on, you, you, can't, you can't call the whole tree bad because, you know, there's one rotten apple. Right. And, you know, I'm glad that you made that point because, you know, it's so you see, you know, Donald Trump, he made some remarks about, you know, not letting Muslims in or whatever. Right. And a lot of people were outraged by that. Right. And and then at the same time. a lot Like, I would assume that a large number of the people who are outraged uh, consider themselves to be a little more uh, liberal or, you know, Democrats. Right. So, and then a large number of the people who have these grievances with the way they feel that police uh, treat them are also in that same demographic, right? right. So, I, I was debating with a, a close friend of mine, and it's like, you know, well, he, he'll post something, you know, whatever, showing a, a video of a cop, you know, slamming somebody, you know, whatever it is. Yeah. And then he goes, look, you see, like, like, look, you know, cops are bad. And I'm like, so... In the same sentence, you're going to tell me that, uh, you know, Donald Trump is a bad guy, you know, because of what he said about Muslims. And then you're going to go and turn around and bunch all police officers up the same way he just bunched all Muslims up. And exactly. it, it doesn't even make any sense, you know, but people no. don't, don't really, you know, step back and think about it. And they kind of just run off emotions, you know. I just, yeah, I don't, it's just, you know, politics is so dangerous, man, because... Yeah. Unfortunately, with the way the two-party system works, it's like you have to believe all this stuff or you have to believe all this stuff or you're not a Republican or you're not a Democrat in in other people's eyes, unfortunately. It's like no one can have their own opinions anymore. You know what I mean? I guarantee there's a lot of people out there that believe in the death penalty and are also pro-choice. You know what I mean? But if if you say you're those things, it's like, wait, you can't be both. You got to be one or the other. And it's just like, no, you don't, man. (laughs) You can believe believe whatever you want to believe but you have to have perspective and understand both sides in all those situations like obviously 
like the, the you know the BLM movement. Um, I I understand where that stuff where they're coming from. I understand that, and I know that's that's really frustrating. But at the same time, like you have to understand where a police officer, someone who's serving and protecting, is coming from, and and that you know to, to paint this broad picture that because because one person did something stupid, uh, much like uh, you know, and much like a, uh, a potentially a, you know a, a Muslim extremist, um, y- you can't say that all Muslims are bad, man. I worked with a ton of amazing uh, Muslims in, in Afghanistan and Iraq and those places where everyone is afraid of them, you know, that are uh, trying to get their country right and believed in what we were doing and were on our team. And, uh, you know, when you fight shoulder to shoulder with those guys, they become your brothers too. So, um, but it's because a lot of us in this community, we have a different perspective because we've been there. Um, yeah, but just like I was saying, I think like the guy you were talking to your, your, your buddy with, you know, he's got that one, that one viewpoint. That's a lot of that's just that media he's been fed. You know, he doesn't really know. He hasn't really been on the ground anywhere. Right. And, and it's, it's something that we, we briefly talked about, um, last night when we were recording, and, um, you know, it's like people, you know, I'm not a law expert, but, you know, I'm not a police officer or anything like that. But I do know that there are rules that, you know, like it is the law. Like if you're resisting arrest, then there's a process in which the police officer can lawfully subdue you. You know what I mean? And people don't seem to understand that. And it's like, you know, and then, you know, th- this is just my opinion, but if, you know, if you feel like you're being being treated unfairly, then, you know, just go with it, you know, cooperate, and then you fight it in court, you know, exactly. versus, you know, resisting, you know, getting into a fight and potentially getting hurt. Um, you, can't, you, can't, you can't assault a police officer, man. Like, no matter what's going on, you just can't do it. It doesn't matter how bad that guy is treating you. It is, you know, strictly against the law, and everybody knows that. That is, like, common knowledge. That's not, that's not a surprise to anybody. You just, you just can't do it, man. It doesn't matter, you know, whether you're on something or not, <laughs> or you're armed or you're not. It doesn't matter. You know what I mean? When you, when someone tells you, you know, when a police officer gives you an order or a command or whatever, you have to follow it or you're, you're starting to put yourself in harm's way. And that's just the way it is. Yeah. And it's just going to end up bad for you. You know, it's like this, you're not going to win from that, you know? So, um, Okay, so moving on, um, can you share like a story of you know one of your deployments with the audience? Yeah, I guess I guess what I'd like to share kind of has kind of goes along with what we were just talking about. You know, when I was talking about um, the good, uh, you know, the good Muslims. <laughs> There's uh, you know, in the special forces, everything that we do, all of our missions, um, for the most part, uh, are conducted by, with, and through local forces, indigenous people. So when I'm in Iraq, I'm, we're working with Iraqis. You know, we're working with Iraqi SWAT teams, Iraqi special forces, et cetera, et cetera. Um, my, last, my last deployment in Afghanistan was actually one of the last missions I went on. You know, we got in this big, uh, this big tick, and there was, uh, there was probably um, 12 to 15 Americans and at least 70 Afghans that we were uh, that we were in this patrol with, right? And we got ambushed, and you know we're turning fire, and we're um, we're back and forth with these guys for hours uh, in this uh, in this village. 
And one of their, they're actually their captain, their uh, captain for the Iraqi special forces team that was on the ground with us, um, was, was moving in an open area and he got, he got shot in the neck and he goes down and the first two guys on the scene were Americans and they weren't even medics. They were just two, two SF guys, the team sergeant and, uh, one of the junior commo guys to treat the casualties and they, and they tried to save his life, you know, before the, eventually the, the, the Afghan medic, uh, made his way over there too and, and tried to, tried to save him. And unfortunately he bled out, he passed away. Um, and then, when we, you know, we're, we're, this is hours later and we're, we're finally eliminated the threat, medevacs inbound and, uh, it, it comes, picks him up and carrying the, the gurney out to the bird is, like three Americans and three Afghan soldiers carrying a dead Afghan soldier. Um, and they put him on the bird and, you know, and the American bird takes off and you see, as they're running back to the side of the road, one of the, one of the Afghans, um, who was, you know, under his command and was a good friend with the, with the deceased, he like just fell to his knees and just lost it, man. And it was just very powerful to me, that image of like, you know, to see how much it matters to them too. Um, when they, when they lose somebody in combat like that and how we helped build that, you know what I mean? We build that, that a lot of that pride, um, in themselves and in their country and what they're, uh, what they're trying to fight for and, uh, in their freedoms. And, and that it stings too when, you know, when, when they lose one of their own, even in a place like that, where a lot of them has lost so much already, you'd think maybe they'd be callous to it, but, uh, it's not the case, you know? And so that, uh, that had a, that had a big effect on me, uh, those kind of things. And I mean, that's, that's one of the, that story. And there's a lot of stories like that, but those moments are what really made me proud to be, uh, you know, in the army special forces uh, and have that mission, have that, uh, that foreign internal defense mission. Yeah, and I know the the fear of foreign internal defense is really like a a staple and cornerstone of the uh, Army Special Forces uh, from the moment that uh, Kennedy commissioned the unit, you know, up until now, you know, and um, right, you know, I, I think as the this this global war on terror uh, continues, I think fear is becoming even more important because you know now if if you know, if we're going to decide that we need a, you know, counter ISIS or something like that, you know, it's, I think mostly it's decided that it should be done with the host nation's forces and, and who better to, to run those type of operations than the army special forces, you know? Right. Absolutely, man. So Nate, um, you know, I know now that, you know, you're, you're out of the army, um, what are you working on? Can you talk about any of that or like things that you got planned? Yeah. I mean, you know, I'm involved in a couple of, well, in a few nonprofits, but a couple, uh, I guess that I'm really involved in, uh, one is called MVP, which stands for merging vets and players. So we're, what we're doing is we're bringing ex, uh, former player, former athletes from sports such as football, hockey, uh, UFC, um, eventually, we'd like to, you know, get baseball and basketball involved in that as well. But we're matching them up uh, with with veterans that are struggling, and 
we've got a program. We, we started out here in LA where every Thursday we got a group of about 15 to 20 homeless veterans that live in a shelter on Sunset Boulevard, believe it or not. Uh, and these are all OIF, OEF vets. So they're all young guys from Iraq and Afghanistan. And they, uh, they come into the gym every Thursday and they get trained by guys like Randy Couture and Chuck Liddell and freaking, you know, NFL, Jadavian Clowney worked out with these guys like two weeks ago. That's and all awesome. these studs. And then we'll work out and we'll train together and we do some mixed martial arts and we do some uh, circuit training and, and, and conditioning and all that. And then we'll sit down on the wrestling mats afterwards. And there's females with us too, uh, all mixed in. And we just share, man. We talk about what's going on with us. You know, a lot of these, uh, a lot of these vets have you know, had suicide attempts or these thoughts in that nature. And, you know, I've had a lot of problems with um, their injuries and pill addictions and, and, and just transition, that transition coming out of the military and becoming a civilian again. And uh, it's just providing that uh, camaraderie and that community, you know, and then pushing them to do something great with their lives moving forward. Uh, it, it means a lot to me. And it's something that we've, yeah, we've been able to, over the last few months, we started doing it on a weekly basis. And it's really powerful to see these guys sort of come alive and get their confidence back and, um, yes, get ready to kick ass in the next phase of life, man, because we're all capable of so much. We all know how to sacrifice and work for something. Uh, and so there's no reason we shouldn't absolutely dominate at the civilian level as well, you know? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, from a lot of the discussions I've had with, you know, veterans from different services and, um, special operations or, or infantry, uh, you know, a, a large issue is, is making that transition, you know, and, um, specifically what a lot of guys have told me is like, you know, that one of the main things that affects them is, is no longer having that camaraderie and that, that, that brotherhood. And, um, so, you know, hearing what you guys are doing, I think that's, that's very awesome. And, um, you know, it's cool that you guys are doing that. Yeah, man, it's exciting. If anybody wants to check it out, uh, the website's uh, vetsandplayers.org. Vetsandplayers.org. But, uh, yeah, man, working on that. And other other little thing is I, I started uh, an initiative within this organization called Water Boys, which is like a an NFL, a bunch of NFL players. Chris Long is the one who started it that are uh, helping provide clean water wells in uh, East Africa through their locker room and fan bases. Um, as one of the fundraising projects, I took a, a wounded vet, a guy who's a Marine buddy of mine and a uh, single leg amputee above the knee, pretty much all the way up to the hip. And we went out to Tanzania and he attempted to try and climb Mount Kilimanjaro with me. And, uh, we raised about 120 grand for, for clean water wells and we're able to go like dedicate them with the people. And it's like the Maasai warriors out there. Uh, and these, uh, you know, these, these old tribal lands that are just gorgeous. Um, and, Unfortunately, they don't have, you know, access to clean water in a lot of these places, and so to be able to provide that was really was really special. And uh, and then, you know, I was able to, to climb the mountain. Blake attempted; he didn't make it all the way up. But uh, anyway, we, we plan on going again next year, next February, and maybe bringing a group with us this time. Uh, that's pretty awesome, man. If you um, if you want, like, for any any of your projects that you got going on, um. You know, if you want to like 
give updates or anything, you know, you're more than welcome to come back on and, uh, and talk about it and like, you know, generate, help generate some interest if, you know, if you're interested in that. Yeah, man, of course, bro. Be great. I appreciate that. No, no problem, man. Uh, so Nate, uh, I know now that you're, you're starting to get a little more into the social media, um, social media realm. Can you drop some of your social media handles for anybody who's interested in checking you out? Yeah. So, uh, on Twitter, I'm at Nate Boyer 37, um, which was my, that was my football number in college. And, uh, it's actually the same Instagram. So I just started Instagram like a couple months ago. So I'm, I'm a fresh, I'm a fresh faced baby on the, on the gram. So I'm still, I'm still getting my sea legs <laughs> Yeah, and making sure I know what's, what's cool to post, what's not. My very first day I had it, I posted two posts, man, and I got slapped in the wrist by some people that were like, Yo, you never post more than one Instagram post a day. That is a, that is a firm rule. No. No <laughs> like, oh man, I'm sorry. I didn't know. I didn't know. So I'm learning little by little, but yeah, that's also at Nate Boyer 37. Um, yeah, I appreciate that, man. No, no problem. So it's just a Facebook. I'm sorry. It's just a Twitter and Instagram. Yeah, I have a Facebook page as well. Facebook, uh, like a public, whatever profile page or whatever. Uh, just Nate Boyer, my name. Okay. Yep. All right, and, and can you drop the um, the link for the the, uh, the the veteran initiative? Yeah. So the first one was uh, that's vetsandplayers.org. V-E-T-S-A-N-D-P-L-A-Y-E-R-S dot O-R-G. And the other one is uh, waterboys dot uh, org slash Killy, K-I-L-I. And that's short for Kilimanjaro. So the, the name of that initiative is Conquering Killy, uh, which you could also just Google that, I guess. But uh, yeah, those are the two links for those, for those, uh, those programs. Okay, great. Uh, Nate, I just want to thank you for coming on, man. And I, I want to thank you for everything that you've done in the military and then what you continue to do for veterans, man. Um, it's pretty awesome. And, uh, you know, again, just thank you. Hey, I appreciate it, brother. Thanks so much for, for letting me share that with, you, with your community there. It's a very, very cool show. All right, I'll catch you, brother. Peace. All right, man. Have a good one. Nate's a real good dude. Um, you know, what an inspirational story to serve in the, in an elite U.S. military unit, and then to play football at a professional level, uh, it's pretty cool. There's not many guys who do things like that. And then, even after he's gotten out, he continues to help veterans and work with different programs and veteran initiatives. So it's it's pretty awesome. Uh, you know, with that, we're gonna conclude this episode. My website is globalrecon.net. My Facebook account is FB Recon. I have two Instagram accounts. The first one is IG Recon. The second is Global Recon underscore Inc. My Twitter account is IG Recon. I'm also on LinkedIn, just search Global Recon. I have some interesting episodes planned for the next couple of weeks. Um, should be fun stuff. But until then, we'll see you guys in a couple of days. Peace.